This is the place where you could wake up any day and have your children sold away from you. This was the place where the domestic slave trade worked like a cancer throughout the entire society for decade after decade. I'm Celeste Headley, and this is Following Harriet, a podcast about a woman who did the remarkable at a time that was filled with the unthinkable. And it all started here in Virginia, at a place called Point Comfort that came to symbolize anything but comfort. We're standing at the Fort Monroe, and the location historically would have actually been Point Comfort shortly after English settlers had established a successful settlement at Jamestown. Eula Dance is the Chief of Resources Management at Colonial National Historical Park. Point Comfort served as the port, so as goods are coming and going, it was the location where all of those uh, arrivals were documented and reported back to England. Um, John Ralph um, was assigned that task and he um, noted in late August of 1619, 20 and odd Africans who had arrived and were traded for food. And so this particular history notes the arrival of Africans to the English colonies. This wasn't the beginning of slavery. It wasn't even the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade because the Portuguese had been transporting captive Africans to Veracruz, Mexico, and the Caribbean for a while. But it was the start of slavery in what would become the United States of America. You know, Virginia, at points in its history, has liked to imagine that it was not really Southern, not really the place that embodied what we think of as the horrors of slavery. But Unfortunately, in many ways, Virginia would have been the place where slavery was at its worst. Ed Ayers is a humanities professor and president emeritus at the University of Richmond. He's also co-host of the podcast Backstory with the American History Guys. So not only is Virginia first, but Virginia remains the largest slave state all the way to the Civil War. And that's powerful because Virginia was also the place from which most people were sold. So that gives you an idea of how strong slavery was in Virginia, that they could sell hundreds of thousands of people and still have half a million people in slavery at the time of the Civil War. When the Founding Fathers met to write the Declaration of Independence in 1776 and the Constitution in 1789, the expectation was that slavery might fade away in Virginia. Tobacco was in decline, and it wasn't clear that wheat its successor, was going to take advantage of as much slave labor, or that its profits would be as high. So we're standing in the middle of Mulberry Row. Uh, So we've got the vegetable garden just down the hill, and up the hill on the other side of us is the main house. The main house is Monticello, home to Thomas Jefferson, the principal author of the Declaration of Independence and the third president of the United States. Monticello's director of African-American history, Naya Bates, says Mulberry Row was the plantation main street of Monticello. It's where all of the industrial labor took place. And uh, at any given time, there could be 30 to 40 enslaved people living and working on Mulberry Row. Uh, You're probably also thinking, wow, just 30 or 40 people. But Jefferson in his lifetime enslaved over 600 people. Over 400 of those people were here at the Monticello plantation. So 
Mulberry Row is kind of that central hub, but if we look out in the distance, we can see the quarter farms where people are living and working, uh, raising wheat and tobacco, the cash crops that supported Monticello. The days for enslaved people here at Monticello were long, 16 to 17 hours, before sunrise to after sunset. Some people would describe it as can't see to can't see. Boys as young as 10 would work in the nailery, cramped into small spaces and expected to turn raw nail rod into short nails. Jefferson was exacting and demanding. He wanted his overseers to ensure that enslaved people were not wasting material. It was a stressful environment where two enslaved boys named Brown and Carey worked. These are young boys, they're teenagers, and they're roughhousing. I mean, you can imagine what happens when you put a bunch of teenage boys in a space for a long period of time, even today. Uh, They're going to cut up. And these boys are no different. Sure, they're living in a very harsh environment, uh, in a violent system of slavery, but they're still kids. Uh, And so they're joking around with each other, and Brown hides Carrie's nail rod. And that means he can't do his job. And that means he's going to get punished. He's going to get in trouble. Uh, So Carrie retaliates and hits Brown in the head, putting him into a coma. Jefferson's overseer writes to him and explains the situation, and Jefferson basically responds and says... Well, we can't allow that. We have to make an example out of these boys. And basically, Carrie is sold. And Jefferson says to, says to sell him far south so it would be like he was dead, so that no one would hear from him again. And that was how he handled the situation. Gail Jessup White says there are countless stories like this, some of them in her own family. And White is in a unique position to tell them. She's the community engagement officer at Monticello, She's also descended from Thomas Jefferson on one side of her family and, on the other side, the brother of Sally Hemings, the enslaved woman whom Jefferson had a long-term relationship and children with. So it's complicated, as complicated as America is. Gail points to the story of Peter Fawcett, who is from the Hemings family. Peter Fawcett, as a boy, didn't know he was enslaved. His grandmother, Mary, was a sister of Sally Hemings. She was free. And she gave to her grandchild clothes, gifts, treats. He was considered kind of like um, sort of a, a family pet. He didn't know he was enslaved until he was sold on that West Lawn in 1827, a year after Jefferson died, and 130 people had to be disposed of because he died so deeply in debt. Peter Fawcett's father, Joe Fawcett, was freed in Jefferson's will, one of a few but Jefferson freed in his lifetime. He was a blacksmith, very skilled man. He was given his tools with his freedom. He spent more than a decade working to buy the freedom of his wife, his children, and his grandchildren. However, Peter Fawcett wasn't among those he was able to purchase because Peter's owner wouldn't let him be purchased. By this time, enslaved people were being exported to Kentucky and then to Tennessee and further south once cotton started taking hold. Still, historian Ed Ayers says there was growing ambivalence about slavery in Virginia. Some Virginia planters had become evangelical, and they had read their Bible and listened to sermons that told them that all people are created equal in the eyes of God. And it has occurred to them that if they followed the golden rule— They could not be slaveholders. Would they wish to be treated as property? Some, like George and Martha Washington, had manumitted 
or basically freed their slaves. About 50 miles to the east, another founding father was struggling with his own complicity. James Madison and his family enslaved about 300 people over many decades. The closest Madison ever came to freeing one of his enslaved people, his enslaved manservant, Billy, who he took with him to Philadelphia in the 1780s when he was attending the Continental Congress. Christian Coates is director of education and visitor engagement at James Madison's Montpelier. And he's about to return home to Virginia in 1783. And he writes his father a letter and he says that he can't bring Billy back home to the plantation because, and I'm quoting, his mind is too thoroughly tainted to be a fit companion for fellow slaves. You know, and what has tainted his mind is all of the talk in Philadelphia about freedom and liberty, right? Billy is living in a a place where there's a large uh, free population that can move about the streets freely. He's living in a place where he's hearing the Declaration of Independence read. There's all this talk of of the war and freedom and liberty. And so he's going to come home to the plantation and he's going to tell everybody else about what life is like in Philadelphia and everybody else is going to want to go to Philadelphia. So Madison writes to his father and he says, but I cannot think of punishing him by selling him south merely for coveting that liberty for which we have paid the price of so much blood and have proclaimed so often to be the right and worthy pursuit of every human being. Okay, so that quote is just chock full, right? Every human being. Madison is recognizing the humanity of the people that he enslaves. Uh, And so he does not sell him into the Deep South or into further servitude or slavery, but he sells him as an indentured servant. And Billy will work for a man for seven years, uh, and then he will eventually get his freedom. In the early 1830s, the Virginia General Assembly actually started seriously debating beginning gradual emancipation. And people are saying it's not so much that we care about black people, but slavery is terrible for white people. Slavery builds a sense of, of arrogance, of entitlement, of violence among white people. Uh, and it also smothers other forms of economic development. We just keep building these plantations with enslaved labor. And when we're not doing what neighbors not too far to the north from us are doing, of building factories and, and developing the economy. But that debate loses. And historian Ed Ayer says things start to turn. Planters and other white people really worried about what those free black people might be doing. They might be doing this terrible thing called learning to read and to be able to preach the gospel to themselves. And that's what Nat Turner does. He reads the Bible. He says, we are the children of Israel. We are the people who are held in bondage, but have God's favor. And the time is going to come now when we shall free ourselves as the people of the Old Testament did. After Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831, where enslaved men used knives, hatchets, and axes to kill more than 50 white people, Virginians never again publicly discussed emancipation. Life carried on. Free blacks built businesses. They were barbers and tailors and lumbermen. Enslaved people also had dreams, but far fewer options. Historian and documentary filmmaker Elvatrice Belchess recalls the story of Henry Box Brown, 
who worked at one of the myriad tobacco factories in Richmond, Virginia. So while Henry Brown was at work, someone got word to him that his wife had indeed been sold, along with at least a couple of the kids. But if he wanted to see her one last time, the slave coffle, you know, a coffle is a chain of human beings. Oftentimes they were connected by chains and or ropes. And so as he was told, Mr. Brown waited on that street for that coffle to come by. Finally, he spotted his wife. She was able to step out just a little bit because she was connected to the person before and behind her. And as I understand it from his memoirs, they clasped hands and he was able to walk with her for perhaps four miles before they had to part. Never saw his wife and kids again. At that point, he was ready to answer the call to freedom, having lost his family. And so with the next year, with the help of Adams Express, he was placed into a wooden box. And he, this was a man who was about six feet tall, average size male. He was nailed into a box that was about three feet, one inch by two and a half feet by two feet. He had maybe three breathing holes. And as he described it, a little bladder of water and a few biscuits. They painted on there this side up, but as it is today, it didn't mean anything then. So there were times where he was on his head upside down for hours, not knowing if he would live or die. That evolved into a 26 hour trip by various means of transportation. Carriage ride, train as I understand it, and vessel to get to Philadelphia. They were getting a little anxious up there because they knew to wait on him. Finally, the box arrived. They pried it open thinking that they would probably see a maybe a deceased person. But once they pried it open, he popped up and stated, how are you all, gentlemen? And then he broke into a psalm of praise, thanking God. They said he was so drenched with perspiration that he looked like he had just come out of the Delaware River. Just a few years after Henry Box Brown mailed himself north, everything changes. We'll have that after the break. Just a quick note here to say that if you'd like to learn more about visiting places that tell the story of Harriet Tubman, the Underground Railroad, and the 19th century African-American experience, especially in the state of Virginia, go to virginia.org slash Harriet. In a shorter way, when people ask what caused the Civil War, we say it's complicated, comma, slavery. <laughs> you know? It's a question Stephanie Arduini gets a lot. She's the director of education at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond. It's part of the historic Tredegar Iron Works complex, which supplied about half of the artillery used by the Confederate States Army, as well as the iron plating for the CSS Virginia the first Confederate ironclad warship. And we hear lots of misconceptions coming out about the cause of the war, which 99% of those go back to the idea of race and slavery. So if it was about states' rights, it was about states' rights to own and enslave people. If it was about 
the idea of, well, slavery was dying out anyway. No, it was actually growing and expanding. It's our country would not exist without the institution of slavery. You know, by the time of the Civil War, there's almost four million people in the South in slavery. Again, historian Ed Ayers. And, you know, we know the story of Uncle Tom's cabin escaping across the Ohio River and so forth. The great majority of enslaved people would have been so far from any possibility of escape through walking or through any means, frankly. You know, sometimes you you teach young people and they say, well, I wouldn't have stayed. Well, it would have been almost impossible to have escaped from most of the South. The places that have the largest plantations are in the interior, the Black Belt of Alabama and Mississippi, or they are secluded like the sugar plantations that we see in 12 Years a Slave. Important thing to remember, too, is that slavery varied a great deal across the South. And many of the young men who were sold out of Virginia or Maryland would have been shipped to Louisiana. There, the sugar plantations preferred to hire over 90% men. And the women they would buy would be just barely old enough to bear children and would be expected to bear children until they could no longer do so. The infant mortality rate there and in the South Carolina low country where they grew rice boggles our imagination. But as the Civil War dragged on and the Union pushed deeper south, the cracks start to show. Just look at what happened at Fort Monroe, Virginia in 1861. 250 years earlier, it was known as Point Comfort. Remember that from the beginning of the episode? The place where the first enslaved Africans to set foot in what would become the United States were traded for food and supplies. How fitting that this place would be one of the first to offer enslaved people refuge during the Civil War. So this is the main, the central entry point to the historical fortification um, at Fort Monroe. Um, Main gate would have been staffed. Um, It is actually likely the spot where Baker, Townsend, and Mallory... In 1861, three enslaved men, Baker, Townsend, and Mallory, showed up at the main gate of Fort Monroe. It was the largest stone fort in the country, and it was surrounded by what is essentially a moat. Yola Dance of the Colonial National Historic Park picks up the story from there. They were being used by the Confederate Army to construct dishes and, you know, lightweight fortifications um, adjacent to Fort Monroe. They made note that Virginia had seceded from the Union, and on that very night, they decided to take that risk and seek their freedom. And they came here to Fort Monroe. It happened to be the uh, second day that General Butler was here and had taken command, and he uh, was confronted with this decision he had to make. Interestingly enough, he had contemplated in the past the ability to keep freedom seekers and had not found an argument that he thought would be justified or sustained. But upon learning of the way that these enslaved men were being used, he felt confident he could argue, him being a lawyer, that they were a weapon being used against the Union Army and therefore could be retained as contraband of war. This led to thousands of freedom seekers arriving not only at Fort Monroe, but at other Union camps um, and forts throughout the country. And guess who else spent some time at Fort Monroe? Our hero, 
Harriet Tubman. So we're standing here at Algernon Oak. Um, Algernon Oak is a witness tree. Um, and that is uh, a tree that would have been here to, as a witness or, or to observe um, and been part of that experience of the past. So when you think in terms of the place where history happened, this tree is believed to be at least 400 years old. So the potential that it witnessed arrival of English settlers, the arrival of Africans, as well as witnessing Harry Tubman. Well, we know that there is a memorandum from the War Department that's dated uh, April 22nd, uh, 1865. And that's authorizing for free uh, government transport for Harriet Tubman to come to Fort Monroe. So we know that she's here in the spring of 65 because she has the ability to get here at the cost of the United States government. That's Robin Reed. I'm the director of the Casemate Museum here at Fort Monroe. The next thing we know about Harriet Tubman is that the Surgeon General of the United States, V.K. Barnes, sends communication to the chief medical officer here in the Virginia Department, primarily to instruct him to appoint Harriet Tubman as either a nurse or a matron uh, here at Fort Monroe. It it is our understanding that she was anticipating serving as grand matron at the hospital, and um, that is not the role that she ended up playing. She cooked. She did laundry. How long does she stay? We don't know that. We suspect a couple of months because there's no records after that. It's a complex and complicated shared history, our United States of America. You could be forgiven if you didn't know that James Madison had slaves or Harriet Tubman was a Union soldier. That's because those kinds of details are often left out or lost as we're taught a certain narrative about our country. But visit places in Virginia like Monticello, Montpelier, and the American Civil War Museum, and you'll see how that narrative has evolved to be much more inclusive and to more honestly reflect the reality of our history. But when you think of it as the making of America and a shared narrative that we all were experiencing and our ancestors all had to make some really difficult choices, you really uh, begin to understand how important that history is to us today. And that's where we go in our final episode of Following Harriet. We'll pull Harriet's story and the story of the African-American experience in 19th century America right through to the present. We'll talk about why a movie like Harriet and how it depicts the way she lived her life is so important to us as Americans at this time. It's really easy to think about slavery as this monolithic experience that happened to 12 million people 200 years ago that we can kind of, oh, that was bad, it happened, it's over. I don't really have to process that too much, right? It's this thing that happened, I can't really think about it uh, too detailed. How could you not want to examine the lives of of enslaved people when you're examining history. It doesn't make any sense to me. If you'd like to learn more about visiting places that tell the story of Harriet Tubman, the Underground Railroad, and the 19th century African-American experience, especially in the state of Virginia, go to virginia.org slash Harriet. In this episode, we heard from Yola Dance and Robin Reed from Fort Monroe, historians Ed Ayers of the Backstory History Podcast and Elvatrice Belchess, Naya Bates and Gail Jessup-White from Jefferson's Monticello, Christian Coates from Madison's Montpelier, and Stephanie Arduini of the American Civil War Museum. Following Harriet is a production by Ingredient Creative. 
with Tanya Ott as the writer and director and Tanner Latham as executive producer. Following Harriet is sponsored by the Virginia Tourism Corporation and the Virginia Film Office.